Welcome to As We Like It, a podcast about film adaptations of Shakespeare's plays. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. If you're a regular listener, you may be a bit surprised to hear me doing the opening. Well, John is a bit busy at the moment and is only going to be able to join us intermittently, so Mark and I are going to be having some guest hosts on and off for a while. But to ease the transition, we thought we'd stick for now to another person named John. In this case, John Kelly. John writes about etymology and language on his blog, Mashed Radish, as well as for our Oxford Dictionaries, Mental Floss, Lexicon Valley, and the Strong Language blog, which is about swearing. But even more relevant to this podcast, he's also undertaken to read all of Shakespeare in 2016 and is blogging about that at ShakespeareConfidential.com. Welcome, John. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real treat to be here. So before we get to the movie, I wanted to know a little more about your Shakespeare project. How's it going? Where are you at right now on your reading? I am actually making pretty decent progress. I think I have about nine plays left. It depends on whether I'm going to take on Edward III, which some count as uh, a Shakespeare play, uh, in the very least, co-authored by Shakespeare. Right. It comes in fit. So I will get behind, and then a week will happen, and I'll devour three plays. <laughs> uh, so it's it's fitting to the drama itself. Um <laughs> I have uh, one more history play left. I thought I would be struggling to finish the history plays. Uh, we'll be covering some of those uh, history plays today mm -hmm. uh, with false staff. Uh, but I've actually found those to be surprisingly fun and, and kind of blockbustery. Hmm. A few more tragedies and a few more comedies. And so, well, I guess a little bit of a mix of everything to go. But it's, it's coming along very well. Cool. And you've been you've been blogging continuously about them. Are you going to do you have a finish for it all or are you going to keep reading and talking about them? That's that's a great question. I hope to turn the project is more personal in nature. Mm -hmm. I've been deliberately trying to take a look at Shakespeare's plays, you know, 400 years after Shakespeare died mm -hmm. on a more personal basis. So I use the plays as an opportunity to reflect on, you know, relationship arguments, mm -hmm. uh, sibling rivalries, being out on the streets and, you know, drinking too much <laughs> and all the, all the warts of life. Mm -hmm. And I blog about that pretty much on a play-by-play -play basis with some more general reflections intermixed in. At the end of it, I might see if I can turn it into a book, mm -hmm. and then I might see if the project doesn't lend itself to reading the complete works of other authors. So I recently moved to Dublin, and <laughs> I had this really masochistic idea of reading all of James Joyce next year, <laughs> maybe writing about it. And you know, the idea might lend itself well to like Dickens mm -hmm. or maybe know, foundational religious texts. Uh, so I'm not sure. I'm going to have a hard time letting go of all this time I've spent with Shakespeare. So I, I imagine I'm going to keep the momentum going. Excellent. Well, you chose the movie this time. And uh, I suppose without realizing it, you chose something that fit perfectly with our Henry ad kick that we've been on. It's uh, Orson right. Welles' Falstaff, The Chimes at mid Midnight. Or sorry, I should say Falstaff's Chimes at Midnight. No, yeah, the... apparently it's two different titles. In the UK, it was Falstaff, Chimes at Midnight. In the US, it was just Falstaff. That's I right. I think. Or oh, I think it was Chimes at Midnight for the US right. and Falstaff, parentheses, Chimes at Midnight in the UK. Yeah, right. I think that's right. 
and it's from 1965 and is based primarily on Henry IV parts one and two, but also with some dialogue taken from Richard II, Henry V, and the Merry Wives of Windsor. Wells plays Falstaff himself with Keith Baxter as Prince Hal and John Gilgood as Henry IV. The movie centers on the relationship between Hal and Falstaff primarily, but it also traces the political situation from Henry IV's uh, seizure of the throne to Henry V's coronation. So, John, why don't you tell us about why in particular you suggested this movie? I swear I had not been listening to your <laughs> Henriette uh, podcast sequence. I, I was enjoying some of them just the past few days, and you really did accidentally form a, a Falstaffiad, if you will. Yeah, um, even more than a Henriette. I think I chose Chimes at Midnight because I had remember hearing about it uh, after it was re-released uh, by Criterion and Janus Films earlier this year, mm -hmm. and it had bubbled up in a couple of movie reviews. Uh, Bob Mondello and NPR mentioned it. Uh, Stephen Metcalf mentioned it as an endorsement at the end of the Slate Culture Gap Fest, if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. And it sort of had been on my radar, and I had wanted to watch it, and lo and behold, uh, Mark came a-knocking uh, about this podcast, and I figured it was a good excuse. Good. Well, that it's a good idea for us, too, because I hadn't actually heard about it recently. No. I don't think. I think I'd missed it. So I don't think we would have necessarily turned to it. Yeah, I didn't know it existed until I heard about it being reviewed this year, and I think that's actually part of the uh, lore of the film. It had kind of fallen into obscurity for many decades uh, for a variety of reasons, even though the film is uh, often considered Orson Welles' masterwork. So right. it has it has that appeal, too, because, you know, Orson Welles is also a, a fascinating figure, as fascinating as Falstaff, as some might say. Yeah, and, and as we'll probably get into, there is a real sort of personal connection, I guess, between Welles and his sort of Falstaff imagination, I guess. Mm -hmm. Indeed. Yeah, I gather there was some issues with funding and then with who owned copyright to it or something, or, and distribution rights or something, which is one of the reasons that it hasn't been seen very much until this re-release. All right. So first off, we've all watched it then for the first time, clearly. <laughs> what did you think of it, John? I found it to be truly Wellsian. I... <laughs> I loved I loved being in Wells's cinematic imagination. You have those deep focused shots. You've got that Citizen Kane esque mise en scène, uh, the chiaroscuro, the foregrounding, the angles. I thought, having really lived in the Henry place for a long time, mm -hmm. Wells brilliantly used the language of cinema to develop his characters and and the themes of Shakespeare's plays. So on that level. I really quite enjoyed it. What did you guys think? Yeah, I thought it was a very rich production. It just, as a film, works so well. You really get a sense of the motivations and everything really works towards, I think, uncovering the, the sort of motivations of the character. Every All the sort of cinematic techniques play to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to be a little less deep than either of you. I, I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a melancholy film. Yeah. Very yes. much. And I'm sure we'll talk about some of those themes. But it was also funnier than I, well, not funnier than I thought Falstaff would be, but a little funnier than I thought Wells would be, frankly. Maybe that was unfair on, to Wells, but I found, especially the first part where they're establishing the Falstaff character and, and, and Hal's relationship and everything, I was laugh out loud funny, which I didn't really expect. And so, yeah, I thought it was a definitely enjoyable and, and fascinating experience. And counterbalancing, I think, some of the humor of those lush uh, tavern scenes mm -hmm. 
is that incredible battle scene where the <laughs> Battle of Shrewsbury unfolds. I had, I had been doing some reading up on the production and that scene, which I think it involves 180 extras and Orson Welles did one of his classic long takes where he, mm -hmm. I suppose, just filmed a great scene for a while. But then in editing, he cut up and you know recombined 200 different shots to make this really muddy and raw yeah. and messy battle scene. I, I was really struck by the mud and there was so much there's so much texture to the film. Mm -hmm. I think the mud and the feeling of the walls, I could almost just reach out and touch them and, and the beautiful lighting. And when you could see uh, Henry IV's breath. Yes. Did you notice? I did yeah. notice that. Yeah. I had a moment of thinking, well, that, that's really British. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in spite of the fact, yeah. I think it was actually filmed in Spain, but still. <laughs> I felt cold in that mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. So it you know, it was interesting to see how cold the castle scenes felt mm -hmm. and how warm the tavern scenes were. I mean, Wells is truly a genius of, of the camera work. And I think that he did justice to Shakespeare, even though he was working in an entirely different medium. Mm -hmm. And I think it really, I see a lot of what, what's going on in this particular film as a statement about heroism. And I think that the battle scene is particularly a central aspect of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it wasn't, I, I don't think... It portrayed military might as particularly heroic. It didn't no. look like winning was all that glorious. Yeah. It was messy and brutal. And indeed, I think I think a lot of the film is meant to sort of undercut traditional notions of heroism. As you say, the battle is particularly brutal and real and violent. And also comical. Though. And also comical, yes. Because I thought... One of the things that I found interesting about that scene was the uh, use of slightly speeded up mm. film. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed that a lot, but it really struck me. There was a fair amount of it where it was not double speed, but, you know, significantly sped up so that you could. They looked kind of jerky and comical, and especially when Falstaff, Falstaff was walking yeah. in his full plate armor. <laughs> that was that was quite funny. Yeah. I mean, you had mentioned the humor and Wells' size. Wells, mm -hmm. during this point of filming, was already large enough, but with his armor on. Mm -hmm. And even little his legs clothing. sticking out the bottom. <laughs> yeah. And and the slightly speeded up so that it was sort of jerky. Yeah. Pant yeah. Almost like a toy. A toy uh, soldier. Yeah. A toy soldier, like a kid's toy, <laughs> sort of trotting along behind and hiding behind trees. I found the battle an interesting combination of very realistic and grubby and also oddly stylized with those slightly speeded up scenes and the quick cuts and things like that. And that I, I found it quite sort of an unset, unsettling effect, which I think was probably intentional. Did you experience that also in the scene in the woods where yes. Hal robbed the pilgrims? Falstaff robs the pilgrims and then Hal robs Falstaff, yeah. Yeah, I think the same thing there. It's very um, disorienting and a little difficult to follow for a moment. And then it becomes, they're not quite have the clown music behind them, but almost a little bit of that, and now this sort of farcical moment where everybody chases each other around in circles yeah. with the like silly the, music going. The Benny Hill yeah, that's, chase scenes. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. what I was trying to say. Clown music wasn't the right <laughs> word, but that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that that too. And if you then parallel those two scenes and you put them, lay them because they had those similar approaches. If you lay the scene in the forest next to the scene on the battlefield, what you were saying, Mark, about undercutting heroism. Yeah the mock heroism of the thievery scenes 
the, the bravery, especially with Falstaff afterwards telling the story of himself as as the great hero. Right. Yeah. And then you have the actual battle, but which is filmed so in some ways so similarly and gives you some of those same disconcerting feelings about is this actually heroic or or silly or funny. And then with Falstaff claiming to be the great hero at the end of that one as well, when he lies and says that he killed Hotspur. So you then put those two scenes beside each other and are asked, I think, to compare the heroic nature of both. And it's it, it fits well with Falstaff as a figure, the tragicomic figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I found, too, that there were moments where the camera work worked dramatically very well. I think in that scene where right after Falstaff has played dead and tries to comically take credit for killing Hotspur Mm -hmm. and then drags his body back to where the king is, the camera will cut back and forth between Prince Harry and then Falstaff and then the king and then back to Harry. And it really effectively sort of condensed the central conflict, which was who's who's Prince Harry's father figure going to be now? Is it going to be yeah. the ribald, wastrel, scalawag, Falstaff? Or is it going to be the, the cool, uh, you know, rational, serious father? And just in a couple of shots back and forth, you could get the whole story right there. And it's just brilliantly done, I think. It's it's really masterful. Yeah, I agree. There were some things about how it portrayed Falstaff that were interesting to watch right after we had watched, Mark and I had watched yeah. uh, the opera. So the last one we watched was the Verdi opera, of which is an adaptation of Mary Wives of Windsor. And with that very recent in my mind, watching Falstaff again as a protagonist, but of such a contrast. And it's interesting. I, I find Falstaff a kind of... I mean, he's he's an interesting spin-off character. I mean, <laughs> he plays a very particular role in Henry the Fourth, Part One, and it's a sort of runaway success that he almost steals the show in a way. Mm-hmm. And right. Shakespeare has to keep bringing him back. I mean, it's but it is that sort of particularly in the way that he's used in Merry Wives. He's almost a different character there. Yeah, and he, he is almost a different character even in Henry the Fourth, Part Two, because he's much more poignant. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more pathos to him. Yeah. Yeah, Henry the Fourth Part Two overall, I think I think Henry the Fourth Part One gives us a lot of the memorable Falstaff moments, the play acting of the king scene, the robbery scene. Mm-hmm. But I think the tone of Henry the Fourth Part Two, as as you both have noted, is much more somber and melancholy and poignant. And again, it's it, those contrasts. You know, when you overlay them, Wells makes sense of it cinematically. I think mm-hmm. in lesser hands, it might not work. It might be hard to balance the comical Falstaff and the tragic mm-hmm. Falstaff. The sort of Shakespearean Bodung's Roman of Prince Hal in part one, and then the more serious uh, Henry IV part two. One thought uh, cinematically that did just jump to mind, um, I, I did love, too, Wells's framing in terms of, in, in the beginning, you would always see Prince Harry saying goodbye to Falstaff. He'd be somewhat removed on top of a horse, kind of looking down on Falstaff with that gorgeous castle in the background. Yeah. And then near the end of the film, you have, uh, you know, Pistol and uh, Bardoff and Falstaff's crew heaving his big casket (laughs) through the mud. And then you see that darker castle going down as well. And it's brilliantly framed those two sorts of feelings. Mm -hmm. Partings and leave takings all the way through. And that's something that's that's represented very well in cinema. Like cinema is really, that's something you can do really well Mm. is show you leavings and separations. 
and and also build a lot of richness into it depending how you frame and how you shoot and i think he does that over and over again really well yeah and in some ways it, we had mentioned how wells himself embodies falstaff mm -hmm. i think during the 50s and the 60s correct me if i'm wrong uh, Orson Welles had a really sort of sour relationship with Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I think Touch of Evil came out, a brilliant film, but it didn't really rekindle his Hollywood career. He had already peaked his greatness, some would say, or at least maybe he felt in terms of Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. And he's grappling with his own meaning, his own relationship to his artwork, and, and you really see that work works so well and how he embodies Falstaff, who is aging. I think what the film does more than what the plays do is highlight the concern about aging. You've got the mm -hmm. opening scene where Falstaff mm -hmm. is talking to Shallow and he just repeats the word old, old, mm -hmm. old. And uh, that's something that I think Wells emphasizes more than uh, Shakespeare does in terms of fall stuff. Yeah, and then and I think that's why it chimes at midnight, not to be too obvious about it, but that <laughs> <laughs> I mean I know it's a well-known phrase of fall stuffs, but also it it is specifically I think highlighting aging and so too. The passing of all things and to to call it that. And the passing too of at least in terms of what Wells has said about the film, Wells remarked that he saw the film also as nostalgia for old Mary England, and he was right. very much interested in how the kingdom of Henry IV into Henry V kind of marked this transition from uh, the Middle Ages into the Renaissance, and how the film itself is sort of a talk about, you know, leave-taking, kind of bidding well to an era of perhaps uh, chivalry, perhaps a code of honor. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a farewell to youth. The way Hotspur is used in particular, I think, maybe stands a little bit like that. Hotspur yeah. is the chivalry of England who is killed and left behind. Yeah. Yeah. He's such a knight yeah. <laughs> in his arming scene. I mean, he's a buffoon too, but a little bit of one. But but he's such a, I'm fighting for honor. I'm fighting. He's a hot-headed youth in the way he's portrayed here. Fighting for honor. And then his death is the death of, of that whole way of life. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I was struck by the use of the trumpeting horns. Oh my goodness, there were so many horns. <laughs> so many. I was thinking, Hotspur, the Percy's must spend their entire household income on trumpeters. <laughs> How many trumpeters they were so have? jaunty. I mean, they were, yeah. they were like dancing up there like the california raisins or something <laughs> like, yeah jaunty. they were jaunty and there were like 20 of them <laughs> <laughs> punctuating the scene every you know almost every other line that that hotspur said there'd be a cut to the dancing trumpeters and then back to him <laughs> <laughs> and yet in the end his body is very ingloriously dragged mm -hmm. by falstaff uh, on a muddy pile after the war and no words are said over hotspur Mm -hmm. And even though we had the the noble goodbye that Henry that Hal gives him uh, right after he kills him, that that is true, yes. Yeah. But but then but that's kind of it's lost because while obviously King Henry the Fourth doesn't believe Falstaff that he killed Hotspur, there's also no celebration made of Hal having killed him, and it isn't even made mm. clear that anybody actually knows or that it's going to be publicized that he's killed. You know, there's no, which is what you they set up at the beginning that he could they would do a single combat, and then they do, but it's a single combat that nobody sees, that isn't recognized, that nothing comes of. That's very interesting. Nobody seems to care and mm -hmm. no pains are taken to broadcast it. Mm -hmm. And I think that just underscores the 
back to Mark's point about the heroism. It's mm. almost matter of fact. It's a pragmatic dealing with an enemy, not a chivalric yeah. end of a contest of arms. And that is the trajectory, isn't it? I mean, it's from real medieval kingship to cold, calculated political. political. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, in a sense, Henry IV is an illegitimate king. Well, right. not in a sense. <laughs> in, a in, sense a, in a very, in a very real, real sense. sense. And that's the thing that troubles yeah. him. Yeah. And as he says in his last words to mm -hmm. the Henry V, to his son, that that's what he's hoping can be repaired by... I was, always, I was always troubled by that part because... So on, on King Henry IV's, his dying words are, it's so long troubled me that my kingship has been beset by all these challenges to my rule, which I acknowledge is basically illegitimate because I usurped and caused the death of uh, Richard II. Mm -hmm. But then he says, I can rest happy now knowing that it's going to legitimately pass to my own son. So if his kingship's illegitimate, but yet it's legitimate when the illegitimate king passes it on now to mm -hmm. his oldest son. I, I never really quite could square that. Why would it still be legitimate? But well, I, I think maybe the point is it's not yeah. any more legitimate. And I mean, that's part of what goes on in Henry V is Henry trying to be a legitimate king. Mm -hmm. I, and probably also has a, a little bit to do with the religious ideas of, you know, the uniting of kingship and True. all of that, because having properly passed it on they will do the right ceremonial things and then if henry v's reign succeeds it will be seen to have the blessing of god from beginning to end if you see what i mean as opposed to it doesn't have the stain of yeah so yeah. i mean it, i don't think it does make a lot of logical sense but i can see the emotional sense both from a king's perspective and also from their the, the people's comparison and that reminds me that at the, at the end of richard ii I, I believe the closing lines involve you know henry bolingbroke now henry the fourth saying i'm off to the holy land so i can you know cleanse myself mm -hmm. of these sins and he and i believe in the beginning of henry the fourth he is setting out to go to the holy land but he keeps on getting beset by all these rebellions so his entire kinship is being beset by challenges but I think, as you guys noted in your uh, My Own Private Idaho mm -hmm. uh, episode, the renditions and adaptations of the Henry the you know the Henry ad never, at least Henry the Fourth Part One and Part Two, never really focus on the political aspects. They always focus on the relational aspects. Mm -hmm. And Chimes at Midnight is is definitely no exception. Although I did appreciate I did appreciate that Wells spent some time on Hotspur. We got mm -hmm. to see some extended lines from the interesting character of Hotspur and his interesting relationship with his wife. Yes. We also got to see some of those beautiful lines of Henry IV when he's musing on sleep. Um, yes. I was wondering if you guys were had any thoughts on those scenes. I had a very completely not appropriate response to it, which my first response was, yeah, well, if you got out of bed and did some goddamn labor, you know, you probably <laughs> wouldn't end up having such trouble sleeping. The reason you're all the, you know, he's so envious of all of his subjects who can sleep so well because they work for 15 damn hours a day. <laughs> Sorry, might have been a little unworthy, but I did, no, I did have a moment of, of difficulty. Me when he said, my subjects, oh, my subjects, you know, oh, my subjects. And, you know, I'm thinking, what does he know about his subjects? But at the same time, yes. he does fight out in the battlefield. And that's something yes. that you'll yeah. never see a leader do anymore. No, absolutely. It was an unfair, um, you know, to some extent, unfair response. Though I do think it, I mean, it, it's become a cliche heavy, uh, what is it? Heavy lies the head that wears the crown because of Shakespeare in part. But 
that whole idea that affairs of state are more troublesome than the honest peasant who can sleep so easily, I mean, goes back easily to Roman poetry. Certainly, I know it there, and I'm sure further back. And it always rubs me a little bit the wrong way. On the one hand, I understand what's being said, and it's true that there are lots of worries if you're responsible for lots of people and you're stressed and you can't sleep. But, you know, it's, it's such a first world problem. Maybe maybe it was just really cold in that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if he, you know, put a fire on in one of those rooms one day, he might actually be able to sleep. <laughs> no. Speaking of the portrayals of power, I, I was intrigued by how so there were very I don't think there were any proper soliloquies in Chimes at Midnight. I think that when Hal addressed his father when they kind of had their reckoning, mm-hmm. Henry the Fourth, you know, asked the lords and nobles to leave, but they just kind of went into the shadows. Mm. All the retinue was kind of always following them around, and I don't know if I've seen any precedent for that before. Yeah, I, you're right. There was a sort of a an at arm's length, but they were always accompanied. And what if there's any historical uh, historical truth to that? I, I probably would, maybe, probably so. But well, I was going to say, I, I suspect that in fact, if you're talking about real. You know, realistically, I yeah. think probably it was was true. I doubt that members of the court were alone, truly alone, truly alone yeah. very often, yeah. ever, um, that they didn't have servants or courtiers. I mean, you, you know, all, all of those uh, various terms of the court that have to do with the king's bedchamber and the, the, the ladies in waiting who slept in the same room as the queen. I, I don't think people were alone very often. The medieval, uh, you know, secret service. And, you know, on historical accuracy... Did they actually mount suited-up knights using those pulling <laughs> those contraptions, on the, <laughs> the swings? They were fantastic, especially when Falstaff got drunk. Oh yeah, you, yeah. you've got to feel that was the entire purpose of that whole scene was so that they could have Falstaff swinging around and the, them straining to lift him and then dropping him. I I don't know about those uh, contraptions, but I I'm. I kind of have to believe it's true. I mean, I know they had to be like literally bolted into their armor usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, th- I mean, they were really unwieldy things. Yeah. So whether they were those kind of derricks or whether they were just sort of lifted, I I, I would suspect it would be more likely that they just sort of put a rope around there under their arms and lift them lift up, them up and yeah. <laughs> over a tree branch. I know they but... used st- um, would often use a stone to mount a horse. Like a stool? A, like uh, basically uh, like a stool. You'd have stone, a yeah. stepping stone, basically. Yeah. Well, certainly uh, you couldn't possibly spring to the ground from like you would normally mount a horse from the ground in wearing that stuff. That no, would be no, literally yeah. physically impossible. Yeah. I remember even in, in Branagh's Henry V, they don't obviously have anything like that and it's not that kind of a movie, but they do go off to get themselves bolted into their yeah. armor. Yeah. You know, at what, two in the morning or something, yeah. they start the process of arming themselves, which is a recognition of that, uh, that mm-hmm. process. <laughs> but There's a lot of wonderful moments, too, in Shakespeare's plays where the characters are, are talking to somebody else and at the same time kind of talking to the person who's shooting them up and the way that Shakespeare dramatizes yes. putting on of the armor while kind of multitasking about the affairs of state that are going on. Yeah. Because it's such a long process. Right. That makes me think, actually, of what I hadn't specifically thought about before. But Henry IV's speech about sleep, then, is paralleled, of course, by Henry V's... In the the camp scene. Going around the camp, yeah. Yeah. And that's an interesting... If you move all the way through, then, as Henry grows into his kingship, he grows into the same cares that his Mm -hmm. father had, I suppose. I don't think I had read any of the Henrys prior to taking on Shakespeare Confidential, and I I didn't realize how stuffed 
the heavy the plays are. There are so many textures going on in these plays. Places, mm -hmm. characters, accents, different yeah. you know, warring factions. They're just exploding with so much detail. And I was worried that I was going to have a hard time actually following the War of the Roses. In fact, I still kind of do, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, all the challenges to the, the throne are, are kind of confusing. But, you know, I, I think uh, the Henriads have been a real highlight of, of my year of reading Shakespeare. Um, the, the histories can seem so daunting, but jumping into the Henrys, they, they take a lot of work because the language is dense mm -hmm. and the action is, is thick and the, the, the plot and the backstory. But, uh, you know, movies like Chimes at Midnight, in the very least, uh, I, I think do good justice to them. It, it would be a good portal into that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things this movie, again, reminded me very forcibly of is how much more trouble I have with the language of the low characters oh, than my. with the upper, upper yeah. class characters. I think it's possibly worst in, well, Merry Wives, which I... If you listen to our discussion of that, I yeah, could yeah. not make my way through Mary Wise. Well, yeah. Oh my God, I couldn't do it. Some of the insults, though, that Falstaff has mm -hmm. about uh, the Welsh characters are brilliant. The, the comedies are really hard. I find yeah. myself reading the comedy so slowly because, one, jokes are topical. They don't age as well. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of historical linguistic reasons for that. But also because they're speaking much more in dialect. Yeah. And it's just much more removed. Yeah, it just it shows how the high register changes more slowly, yeah. I think, than the low register, which is no linguist, as you both know, would have any problem <laughs> understanding that. It's one thing reading it on the page, but when it's in a movie or a play, there were big, not big chunks, but there were chunks of this where I just, I have no idea. There was some of the stuff with Pistol in particular, who is such a oh, impossible yeah. character. I don't know what happened. It it didn't matter too much. I could tell there were jokes, but I just... <laughs> <laughs> Whereas I don't really find, and partly it's because I'm trained to it, but I don't really find it hard at all to follow the language of the, you know, the upper class characters and and the high speeches. I'm so used to especially it, really. From those, especially from those great Shakespearean actors, yeah. when you yeah. have someone like uh, Gilgood, right, yeah. who plays Henry the Fourth. Yeah, I find the language easier to understand when somebody like him delivers it. Mm -hmm. Then when I actually read it on the page, sometimes because yes. these actors know where to, they know what beats to accent and when you accent the beat it accents the meaning and then you can access it so well i also think too that maybe we remember the high speeches more it's yeah. probably a two-way street but henry v speeches we know you know once more into the breach yeah. and all those are kind of on our tongues unlike the lower class characters yeah no i certainly think i, I mean that's it's partly just training it's and i've read more of the tragedies of shakespeare than i've read of the comedies yeah. and 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 the language does that so many of the phrases make their way in and certainly Certainly you're right when it's the actors who read it. Basically, they've done a level of interpretation for you. It's like you're reading... Yeah, a, they're a, giving you a lot of help. Yeah, it's like you've, you're reading the annotated edition because they've figured out what it says and then they say it that way. And when you're reading it on the page, you don't know, oh, is that a noun or a verb until you get to the end of the line, like, you know, turn right. around or reversed or whatever. You don't know how to read it until you've read it. They've done that for you. <laughs> so when yeah. they say it the right way, they've already right. had a level of interpretation. And in, in spite of the challenges, I, I was still happy to see that Wells incorporated such a variety of linguistic textures. All the oh, characters, yeah. you could, I, I had a hard time understanding some of the comic characters, mm -hmm. but I loved getting to hear and kind of inhabit that different world and that different, those different levels of 
of medieval uh, England as a result of his hearing those different accents. I was happy that those textures were there. If if anything, it added uh, authenticity, mm-hmm. and it also really showed how steeped Orson Welles was in these plays. I, I had been reading some of the backstory, and it seemed as if he was truly obsessed with Falstaff all throughout his life. Yeah. As as a young kid, he had done some stagings. Then in the 30s, he tried this huge production of All of the War of the Roses and didn't really succeed. And then he rebooted again in the 60s. And as Mark noted, the funding was on and off. So it was truly uh, a life's work for him. And mm. it showed in the film. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really is a monumental job, the adaptation in this mm-hmm. film. Because it's not it's not just a question of, you know, taking a play and editing out bits. It was a complete reworking uh, of the material and moving stuff around. Yeah, I was really impressed by how coherent a movie it was just as a movie. It was such a coherent and well arced and well paced movie. And yet, as far as I can tell, the only thing he added, other than maybe repeating some lines here and there and things, was the Holland's head at the beginning and end that was just to set the scene. He did a bit of repurposing of some lines. Yeah. I went back into the texts and I wanted to locate where some of the lines that I had recognized and remembered were Mm -hmm. from. And as Mark was saying, he, he shuffled around the language a lot. So Mm -hmm. for example, I think, I think uh, two thirds of the way through the film, Falstaff is starting to feel sad because he hasn't, to put it simply hung out with his pal Hal in a while. Right. And he talks about how he feels melancholy as a jib cat or a lugged bear. That actually occurs in the, the very first scene where we meet Falstaff as he's pounding around with Hal in Henry the Fourth, Part One, so oh, okay. he really did shuffle quite a bit around, yeah. and it's impressive. And what's equally as impressive is Falstaff has a lot of lines in the Henry plays. He's very verbose, <laughs> and he's got long chunks, and they're hilarious. But Wells, larger than life as he is, actually doesn't have Falstaff speaking all that much right could have made him double the length of time on screen yeah. or, or... instead we get we get in that that wrenching uh, rejection scene mm-hmm. i think the most powerful moment is when we're looking into well's eyes and what's his reaction is he stunned is he on the verge of tears mm-hmm. is he hurt is he shocked and wells expresses just the intensity of of that rejection of uh, that confusion all through the way he uses his eyes mm-hmm. uh not through the words and you know that makes sense because he's dealing with the medium of film but it's still true to you know the Falstaff character and it's interesting that that moment is then followed up by the scene of Henry V pardoning Falstaff which is not an element in the original play that's right. That, yeah, he's, he's he part- repurposes that line yeah. from someone else. He, no, he he takes that from Henry V. John, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think he takes that from Henry V in that scene where he tests the traitors. Right. And he says, enlarge so the prisoner who we condemned mm-hmm. last night. And then the traitors are like, yes, no, don't do that. Kill him. Mm-hmm. And then he says, now you argued against mercy, so I'm going to kill you once he exposes the traitors. Because mm-hmm. I it, it threw me off for a moment mm-hmm. when he said it in the mm-hmm. in the Wells movie, because I was like, wait, that's but wait, what are we happening now? It's, are they going to argue against Falstaff? Like, I was confused for a moment because I didn't realize. You're I, exactly I right. I looked that up, too. It's it's Henry V, uh, Act 2, Scene 2. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he he pardons the 
the rabble rouser, and then he goes on to punish the traitors. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually kind of a brilliant move because... Oh, I I agree, certainly, yeah. Because the big question, I suppose, in the end is, what are Hal's feelings about Falstaff? Is he just, was he just having some fun, and was he using his friends and that glorious speech about, uh, you know, their unyoked idleness? Or, Or is the rejection more complex? In that scene where he's talking to one of his generals or lords, you know, he blames it on excess of wine. And mm-hmm. it, it made me feel a little bit good, frankly, because it went, he's not rejecting Falstaff for who Falstaff is as a person. He's blaming Falstaff on some sort of external, and he blames it on the wine, not Falstaff. It's his lifestyle, person. not his person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a central aspect. And it was interesting to me comparing this now again to my private Idaho Mm. for the Falstaff figure there and the the Hal figure there, because I felt in that movie, of course, in that movie, the focus is on Hal as our protagonist. But there, Scott is therefore very much um, sympathetic. Yeah. And we are sympathetic to him. And while we do see him coldly rejecting Falstaff at the end, I felt in that movie that we feel very sorry for him that he has had to make this move away from the pleasures mm. of his youth and that he's been swallowed up by the world of his father and that he's torn in two but can't. And then with that, that whole scene at the end um, the funu- uh, with the, the, the funeral, funerals. yeah, where yeah. he clearly wishes he could be at the other funeral and, and his fa- both fathers of his have died, which of course is the same as, as we've got in Henry. Oh, so in that movie, the Falstaff character was very, very likable, but was also clearly manipulative yeah. the whole way through. Not just deceitful, not just using Hal, but also like manipulating him, trying to get things out of him. Probably uh, taking advantage of him. Yes, mm. exactly. Whereas I think in this movie, Falstaff, Sure, he's in it. You know, he wants something out of it. He's totally thrilled when Hal becomes king. He's going to get, get something. Going to yeah. get that. But it's very much played that there is a strong emotional bond. Yeah. And that he's just also wants stuff out of it. There are moments when you just feel that Falstaff is happy to see Hal. Yeah. He's excited to see his friend and not the heir, his friend. Exactly. So we that rejection scene is, is so pivotal. And I love the way that Wells shoots Falstaff as kind of being on the outside, being unable to... You can't even get uh, into to where... Yeah, all the joust yeah. glances are, are up through. And then he, then he breaks through and you can see Heath Baxter, how brilliantly he plays kind of a, a cold, detached face. But I always felt that King Harry was really cold in his rejection yeah. of Falstaff in the end. Yeah. Unlike in My Private Idaho, you guys were saying, where it's a bit more sympathetic and graceful. And... Yeah, and that that's that was the contrast I wanted to make, because while it, My Private Idaho actually uses at least the first part of Hal's speech, he says, I do not I do not know you, old man, which is very cold. And it is a very, and it's in a crowded restaurant, and it's all very, like, it is, it is horrifyingly humiliating and awful. But at the same time, it goes on in the movie to give you this picture of the Hal character as being very Mm. torn about it and upset about it. And in this movie, I think that by putting in all those, I mean, which are in there, but like really emphasizing the asides from very early on, from almost the very first scene we see Hal, he's already saying, I'm going to have to give you up. Oh yeah. And he does it very coldly. Yeah. Not in a, 
I will. That was so dramatic. Yeah, exactly. And and all of those scenes and all of those bits and the sides where he and the ones where he says, well, I'm just doing this because I'll look the better afterwards. They're not played in this movie at all as a someone who's feeling regretful about it or no, is worried yeah. about it. It's, it's very calculated. Yeah. And so it, it seems to me that unlike in My Private Idaho, where the Falstaff figure is the manipulative one and Scott, while he's got a plan, is emotionally attached to the people he's with. Yeah. But in this one, it seems like Hal is, I don't think he's ever friends with Falstaff, the way it's played. He's a much more selfish figure. Mm -hmm. He's shown as a sort of almost against his will uh, laughing at, you know, he's amused by Falstaff. I don't think there's any doubt of that. And he's amused and entertained by the life he's living with them. But I don't see any emotional, very little emotional concern for him. You could feel it when, so there, there's that amazing scene where Falstaff pretends to be the king and then they take turns and then, you know, Prince Harry pretends to be the king. Mm-hmm. And at least in the way that Wells renders it, you can feel how take it too far. You can feel oh, yes. him just turn the knife in his side and uh, Falstaff won't even look at him. Mm-hmm. And you can see that it's just, it's a it, it, he's a plaything for... Prince Howe, but for Falstaff, he's been longing. You know, of course, there's ideas about youth and and all of that, but it really feels like Falstaff is just longing for that kind of core friendship. Mm-hmm. And yes, he wants to get money out of it and stuff like that. But the way they they play it, when he runs off, he's like telling all his his retinue of pistol and people like that. Not pistol, but the others. Master Shallow, I'm going to get you all things too. It's portrayed yeah. not as in okay, our ships come in, but more as in my ships come in, and I'm going to share it with you all. He's as a friend, like he's yeah. thrilled that he can now be the one who's going to have the largesse to 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 distribute and to help his friends. So he's he's given this very warm-hearted, not yes. calculating. But you're right. The, the the money isn't for his own vanity and glory. The money mm-hmm. is so he and his pals can have fun so they yeah. can have a couple of sacks so they can have a romp around and they can have the bands and, and so a- that they can put off the problems of old age too because of course it's very real i mean when you get old in that society you die alone in a corner cold and st- hungry like if you don't have money that's what happens that's what happens and and in the film the i think the first uh, major scene in the film is you know, you've got uh, Shallow and Falstaff mm-hmm, yeah. tromping through the snow. Then they go in that very cold room and Shallow just won't shut up talking about all the friends who have died. And he's yeah. kind of checked out at that point. And then they come back to it later, which I think is wonderful. Yeah. And, you know, Henry says that and it's almost like it's the it's almost worse that he says when he rejects him. Of course, we'll give you some money so that you aren't driven by want to do bad things. Oh, uh, yes. And it's... And fa- and what does Falstaff say? He almost continues defending how he says, "He says I shall be sent for soon at night." Uh, this, this, what that you heard was but a color. Mm-hmm. He's, you know, of course, defending himself, but I almost felt like he was still not letting himself think of his own friend in a bad way anymore, too. Yeah, the way Wells plays it is very much that Falstaff is truly deceived. Mm. He's not, again, just going back to my private Idaho, there you sort of feel like both parties know that they're using the other party. So Hal knows he's using Falstaff, but he also knows that Falstaff is using himself so that they're, you know, which of them is going to come out on top? How is it? How is the dice going to fall? What's going to happen? Everybody's in it for what they can get. Okay. But in this one, it feels very much like Falstaff. It never crossed his mind. 
that Hal yeah. would reject him. Yeah. It never even... I think that's really well put. And he's devastated, therefore, by the loss of it. And, and in fact, can't even really bring himself to believe yeah. it. It's not just for his own vanity, oh, he's going to send for me later. He's really trying desperately to think of some way that this could have happened because Hal loves him. How did this happen? And he walks away alone. He is so dwarfed by the dark, looming yeah. castle. Yeah. With his staff and his page boy, too, even his young page is sort of looking at Falstaff, not quite pitying him. I, I've never quite decided whether Falstaff is pitiable. He's certainly more pitiable in Wells' rendering than so. he is in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But pity or pathetic, that's not quite the word. I think what you said, Avon, about him being so stunned that he was deceived at all, I think mm -hmm. that really hits the nail on the the emotional head for me about uh, Falstaff. And I, and I was just looking through King Harry's just bitter, cold rejection speech of Falstaff. And I'm looking at the language and it's very much about King Harry. He says, you know, but being awake, I do despise my dream mm -hmm. that I have turned away from my former self. So will I, those that kept me company. It's very much about Prince Hal. It's not, there's no acknowledgement of the friendship they had. There's not even really an acknowledgement of their vices as such. He really only talks about it in terms of, you know, tainting him and inconveniencing him. I'm really on this Falstaff Wells bandwagon here. Yeah. I think this is, <laughs> I'm really feeling this Orson Wells. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. I really, by the end of it, I dislike Hal. Yeah. And, and he was, you know, he was reasonably, it's not like he's played as a villain the whole way through. That's not right. Because I think that's important that he's not, a, that he is attractive mm -hmm. too, because... Otherwise, it wouldn't be believable. He's very popular. People want to be around him. Yeah, 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 and he's funny, and he's that guy who can lead the jest and make the good ideas. And but I never, I never warmed to him. I mean, the closest I got was perhaps his scenes with his father. There are a couple which mm -hmm. are quite touching, but even there, I thought the way that they played the bit, which is in Shakespeare, of him taking the, the crown. crown. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then when his father so readily believes him. You yeah. sort of want to scream at him, go like, no. "Why? What are you?" He's manipulating. That was just, that yeah. was a transparently dumb lie. What is your problem? <laughs> I mean, I know you want to believe your son, but really, this is the one you believe. In the text, there's a lot more dialogue between the two, uh, and you really can't imagine following this up with Henry V because right. you can't really redeem him after that rejection. Mm -hmm. And and also. With Henry V, who is that attractive to those around? I mean, well, I mean, as I said, he was attractive, but like, who is so loved yeah. by the various people who love him in his army? Again, to circle back to Mark's point about the heroism, mm -hmm. I, I'm thinking about uh, Keith Baxter as you know the newly crowned Henry V. His face looks deader, colder, as if when he says that I have turned away from my former self as if it's literally a different self. The joyful, yeah. playful Hal is actually dead, is truly former. And for him to properly be king is to be a completely different person. And, and maybe there's something about, is Shakespeare making comment on the different kinds of persons you have to inhabit as a friend versus a ruler? Yeah, other yeah. yeah. And, and that it's, I mean, obviously there's the youth and adult, there's a maturation. Mm -hmm. It's not even a metaphor for that. It is literally that. But I think it's more than that. I think there is this idea that there is a, a performance. You can perform one person in one context and perform another person in another context, and you have to. Yeah. That's kind of the sympathetic viewing or reading of it that I saw in 
my private Idaho, where there is a time and a place when you can be one person and sometimes in other times and places you have to be someone else. And it can be hard and cold and upsetting, but sometimes it's just inevitable. In this one, I think, I think that's in the Shakespeare. I think Wells, though, presents us more with someone who was always acting the one when's never really that. And now he's put that aside and now this is who he really is. Yeah, and, and there are there are moments when it feels like Prince Hal is exploring whether or not he wants to, to linger on person, yeah. in the tavern world. I think when he talks about, I have a, is it is it to paraphrase, is it vile in me to have a to have a thirst for some small beer or yes, some such? Right. And he goes back to the tavern and hangs out, and then seems to kind of just wander away as if he has realized once more, no, this is not the world for me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think another viewing or two might convince me that there's more to Prince Hal than, than how I feel now. Yeah, the ending really does undercut my feelings about him before, like color. When I, when I look back, the, I'd have to watch the beginning of the movie again yeah. because the ending so, was so powerful. I wanted him to miss being friends with Falstaff. You yeah. know what I mean? I wanted him to be sad, even if he had to do that. I don't think anyone necessarily is terribly surprised that he doesn't make Falstaff into his Lord Chamberlain or something. I mean, <laughs> like, I, I don't think that's what we want him to do. That would be ridiculous. We understand how he has to, to some extent, repudiate mm. him. But to banish him. Yeah. And to do so in that way of, I, I know you not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just that instead of... Oh, the not, old man. Yeah. Fall to thy prayers. And then to make clear that indeed he does know him, but despises him. I mean, it, it, it is... It, you want him, yes, to be torn. You want him to be upset about it. You want him to look back. And that's what Branna does in Henry V, mm. right? Yeah. That's how Branna uses Falstaff in Henry V. He is obviously making Henry sympathetic. And so he uses those flashback scenes to Falstaff to make Henry seem to be feeling the weight of his kingship and the loss of a part of himself that he had to give up to be king. And that makes it then of a piece with the the speech that he makes when he walks the field and of his need to contract a political alliance with Catherine and all of those things that is part of what he had to give up in order to attain something. And you feel sorry for him for having had to lose Falstaff. I suppose that final scene that Wells ad-libs, if you will, where he uses the scene from Henry V about pardoning the drinker, I suppose that does kind of paint the light touch. But it's funny, though, too, when you mentioned Catherine, in Henry V, that courting scene where Henry V Mm -hmm. courts Catherine and he looks like he's got, you know, in modern parlance, absolutely no game. <laughs> it's it's hard to square that with this absolutely heroic ruler mm-hmm. who gives these amazing battle speeches, then yet with this absolute you know, neophyte in love. Yeah, I don't know if I'm too swayed by the Branna version of Henry V because I do love it so, but I don't feel like he's a neophyte in love at all when he was Catherine. I think he is, mm. again, every bit of calculation, yeah. every bit of pr- perfect rhetoric he's doing the unaccustomed as i am to public speaking trope and then he does a beautiful job of, of wooing him i i think of wooing her i i am swayed by that you yeah. you've convinced me that because <laughs> I think about it, on some level from beginning to end as complicated as prince how might seem he's actually maybe he actually is a good ruler because he's so adept at performing his role so he's yeah. he's a true mm-hmm. He's a true politician. I think there's that line in Henry the Fourth, Part One, 
where one of the earls or whatnot says, it's Warwick who says uh, to the king before he dies, the prince but studies his companions mm-hmm. like a strange tongue, wherein to gain the languages, tis needful that the most immodest word be looked upon and learnt and, and so on. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's why we don't like him. And maybe that's why we react as we do against politicians, especially when mm-hmm. we can see their performativity. Yeah, and how good they are at it. And that scene in that bit, we have the reaction that the courtier is just trying to find a excuse for how. But you can go all the way to the end of Henry V and be like, yeah, he did that. He sat in the tavern, he figured out how to get the girl, and then he stood there and he won Catherine. He studied his companions, and then he put it to good use. It's Machiavellian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and yeah, and I, I think, um, I mean, I thought that the Wells, the fact that he made it about Falstaff, but he did include so much of the political yeah. machinery and the political situation. I think that was sensible, but also worked really well to help us get that idea of Hal as a politician, to show us the world he had to work in where people were deceitful, but also, you know, what what was going on and and to show us why it would matter that he would want to present one face and then another face to give us those two worlds he had to move between. Because it was such a jarring contrast as we moved back and forth from the castle to the tavern. But then that shows us there's two sides to him. It did, and it, it makes me wonder... If Falstaff is so big-hearted, mm-hmm. pardon the pun, is he naive for all of his worldly experiences? Does mm-hmm. Shakespeare envision him as a tragic figure? Is he more so comical? I think Wells thinks he's naive, presents him as yeah. honest. Honest, yeah. He's honest. For all the fact that he's the one who steals yeah, things and stuff. Yeah. He is honest, emotionally honest. Mm-hmm. And Hal is deceitful. Honest and earnest, too. Yes. Yeah. 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 And not ironic. Um, he's more youthful as a result of that. Yeah. 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 Hal is the old the old man in the 15-year-old body or the 20-year-old body as in the play, as it were. He's the one who's calculating every move. Ah, so many layers, Wells and Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. So many layers. So well done. I found it really interesting as the best adaptations of Shakespeare make you find more in the Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. And I certainly did because I found it when I when I had read this ages ago, I found it very hard to pull anything thematic out of it because there's so much going on plot wise. It's so busy. Yeah, there's so much happening and not having seen it acted, but just having read it, it was very hard to sort of pull everything out of it. But I think Wells draws and we haven't we've barely talked about the father son stuff because I suppose it's so obvious. But the whole father son and then with Hotspur and his father, who is sort yeah. of absent but there and there's no good sons and good fathers. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it's I, I, I was so struck by that scene where there's, there's two scenes. I think the scene where Henry IV laments the fact that Hal is not like Hotspur, the person who's leading a rebellion against him mm-hmm. and wishes his son had that within him. And I think all of us, all children can locate our own experiences with our own parents and feelings of not living up to expectations. And and for all the grand sweep of the Henriad and, and for all the grand sweep of Orson Welles himself, I think their enduring power are those little scenes of rejection when Hal becomes the father, kind of rejecting the son in a way in the end. And it was really grabbing. And then the sort of the realistic and therefore heart-wrenching thing, Henry did accept Hal right at the end, Mm -hmm. in essence, and hoped that Hal was right. Hal then rejects Falstaff as a father figure or as a son either way at the end. But 
his father now is gone and cannot see him do it. The, the one thing right. that his father that wanted, wanted him wanted to, do to do the whole yeah, time was to reject Falstaff. Yeah. And he does it, but only once it's too late to give any joy to his father and can only give pain to Falstaff. And so we're left with this unresolved, you know, what could have been a pat reconciliation scene never can happen because his father is dead. And that's so much more human and heartbreaking than having it all tied up in a bow at the end. Oh, that's brilliant. And then I, it makes me think of two of that young page looking at the limping Falstaff mm -hmm. walking away yeah. as if he's sort of a a paternal like figure pitying, you know, this poor lowly person. Yeah. For all of his size. Yeah, so reduced at the end. Literally reduced. Mm -hmm. So one thing about Falstaff too that it's it one reason that Falstaff is so fun is because his language and the insults that yes. he, you know, some <laughs> provokes in others or uses himself. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Abs absolutely brilliant wordplay. And I was wondering what your guys' thoughts were on the extent to which Wells is dealing with Shakespeare's language, including those really colorful insults. You know, the thin as a tailor mm -hmm. and the. The pint, the, the pint pot, and the the eel skin, and all that. I, I was notice. I was listening to your episode on Macbeth, and I think that I, I haven't seen that rendition mm -hmm. yet. The Fassbender, and you were remarking about how because Macbeth is the language is incredible in that play, mm -hmm. and yet the movie doesn't really even do any justice to the language. And where it does, it's whispered and it's hard to understand. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, what were your guys' thoughts on how Wells dealt with Shakespeare's language in Chimes at Midnight? I, I mean, I thought it was good. The one criticism I would make is that the sound quality, the sound syncing is sometimes off. It's bad. Yeah. 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 And yeah. that undercuts the vocal performances. Mm -hmm. Though, I mean, you still, I mean, Gilgood still comes through so clearly and, and with a very strong focus on the words. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was definitely not the opposite of Macbeth because it was not just a stagey, you know, it, you, it was very cinematic as well. Yeah. So the Fassbender was very cinematic at the expense of the text. I think this was cinematic, but it did not, not at the expense of the text. No. Yeah. But I thought it was great. I was quite impressed with, you know, as you guys were saying before, if I were to approach the story of Falstaff dealing with the four or five plays he did and mm -hmm. the way that he pieced together those lines... I, for one, cannot do it, which is why I'm not Wells and which is why I'm not Shakespeare. But the other thing that really struck me, too, was, you know, even you had said uh, these film adaptations of Shakespeare, the good ones really make us appreciate the text all the more. Mm -hmm. And and then you had also talked about a lot of the high speeches and, and, how, and how easy it is to gravitate towards those. And it's those little asides and those, you know, the, the smaller, lowlier words that we overlook and I think there's four words that are most powerful for me in this movie, and it's it's when they're play acting as king, and Hal takes it too far, and he says, "I'm going to banish you." And then those four words, "I do, I will banish thee." And what a testament it is to Chimes at Midnight that what I'm taking away are those four words from Shakespeare, not you know, not, not any the of the glorious vocal. speeches. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that really, I mean I think that's really compelling. That's really powerful. That. Wells has the ear for that everyday language and those little words mm -hmm. that I think are probably pretty easy to look over when you're in a text. Even mm -hmm. you had previously noted that your main relationship to Shakespeare is on the page. Yeah. Uh, that's true for me as well. And it's easy just to kind of move along, try yeah. to make sense of the plot, <laughs> underline those important speeches, read glosses, and yeah. those little words are the first to go. So for a movie to lift up four little words like that, I think is quite profound. Yeah, I agree. 
And I do think it it also showed the joy in language. Yeah. That is one of the things I love the most about Shakespeare, that just the play, the absolute play. And the, in those comic scenes, especially towards the beginning, they're funny. I mean, the way they did that lovely scene where Falstaff is reporting on the th <laughs> thievery, you know, and the theft and is over reporting and over yeah. and, and the way that <laughs> with Hal yeah. going six i thought there were only four and, and all of that That's you know seven it's 11 yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean they did it beautifully they the actors did it really well so that it seemed natural it didn't feel stilted also every word and every grandiloquent gesture and every over-the-top use of mythological references and everything else just it was there and it was it was funny yeah. it was nice and there wasn't a weak performance in the whole no thing. no certainly oh. the tavern keeper i just want to point her out I loved her. <laughs> she was her facial expressions, especially oh. when she was watching the performance, were so good. I just and she just she was just sweet. <laughs> like that's an odd thing to say, but and her telling of the deathbed scene at the end was very affecting. And I think her name is Mistress Quickly here. So one of the things I've been doing for Shakespeare Confidential is I, I've been keeping close track of every swear and curse, and also just about right. every word that I find interesting. And that's a little more work than I probably needed to sign myself up for. But I've been writing about some of those swears for the uh, Strong Language blog. Mm -hmm. And when I approached Henry the Fourth parts one and two, it took me so long <laughs> just to get through eight lines of Falstaff because the every single word <laughs> is a sex joke and it was very much downplayed <laughs> yes. here and maybe that makes him more sympathetic mm. but yeah. before i forget i did want to i'm happy you brought up mistress quickly because it was interesting to see how falstaff in the film always had his own audience people gathered yes. around yeah. because they liked they want to watch yeah. yeah every time he starts to sort of put on a performance all the girls come running out from the wind that's from right the, yeah from the yeah. rooms so they just want to hear what he has to say because they know he's going to be funny and not to laugh at him, but to, to have some laugh crack with, with him. him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Actually, now parallel that with King Henry never being alone. They both have their courts. That's true, yeah. Hmm, that's a really interesting analog. They always have their courts. Yeah. And I mean, that does make sense because the choice in front of Hal is which court and which companions, literally. Right. With yeah. whom is he going to break bread? With whom is he going to be close? And is it going to be the tavern, the court at the tavern? My head spinning with the dualisms here. <laughs> yeah. And then when they do the scene where he, where they play King Henry, yes. they have the dueling versions dueling. of who will I dismiss and who will I keep. Right. And that, of course, prefigures the end. Oh, it's almost like Shakespeare's clever or something. <laughs> I suppose this is the reason why you guys are such good academics, finding these dualities. And... Well, we're trained to see these patterns. And one of the people we're trained on is it's Shakespeare, Shakespeare. <laughs> because he's so, so good at putting them in. <laughs> but yeah, that's why it's so fun. It's endlessly fun to talk about these things, I think, because you feel like you're never done. Yeah. You're never done finding the next bit that just locks There's into place. Some, some other thing to discover. Mm -hmm. and I, I, I really do feel like Chimes at Midnight was a portal into discovering so much more about these plays mm -hmm. and about Falstaff, and especially about Prince Hal. I hadn't really thought too deeply about Prince Hal. So I suppose I found him a bit more forgettable. Uh, Falstaff does sort of steal the stage mm -hmm. in the text themselves, but now I can't help but it's easy to think of Falstaff as a foil for Hal, but in some ways it's Hal who's really the foil for Falstaff, mm -hmm. if, if that makes sense, in that we're judging, we're now judging Hal 
in relief of foul staff, whereas Hal in the plays, according to his father and all that, mm-hmm. is judged as a result of his acquaintanceships with the company he keeps. Yeah, we in the end judge Hal wanting in comparison to Falstaff because Indeed. he was given the chance to be in Falstaff's company and rejects him. Mm. And it is that rejection that everyone else wants Hal to make. Their standards and ours do not mesh. Indeed. Yeah. It is interesting to me because I have had trouble with these plays before. And I do think that having now watched, I mean, I came to it only having really any connection with Henry V and having watched now in my private Idaho, The Merry Wives of Windsor in opera form <laughs> and, and Henry V and now this. Yeah, I've got a totally different appreciation for mm-hmm. that whole set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I was, as I was uh, at the beginning of the episode, I was really surprised that I enjoyed the history plays as mm-hmm. much as I have. For one, I have a I have a really hard time keeping track of monarchies. My brain is just not <laughs> wired for it. I just I I can't keep track of it, and I was worried that the history was going to hold me back, the language was going to hold me back. And so, you know, I had eaten up a chunk of these history plays early on. I fell in love with the Henry ads. And then I went to, you know, Henry VI. And there's three parts to the Henry VI. <laughs> and I went, this is going to be absolutely impossible. How am I going to get through this? And I, it was the only time I finished one play and I literally picked up the next play. Because <laughs> you wanted to know the next bit. Yeah. I'm done with Shakespeare. I'm so exhausted. I feel like I should usually have a drink afterwards because, you know, hey, I've accomplished something here. I finished a Shakespeare Absolutely. play. This is something to celebrate. And here, you know, I, I poured that glass glass of wine, but I went right into Henry VI Part Two. There was a quote from a film critic and film, uh, I guess I should say film scholar is a bit different than a film critic, Dudley Andrew. And he said, I wrote this down. He found uh, Chimes at Midnight to be the greatest adaptation of Shakespeare that cinema has ever produced. And <laughs> given that this is a podcast uh, about uh, the adaptation of Shakespeare on the screen, I thought that was a pretty big tout. And yeah. I thought maybe we muse on that one for a little bit. I mean, one of the things I'm never going to do in this podcast is pick a, fit, yeah, pick a is best do film. a final ranking or yeah, anything like yeah. that because I think it's impossible. But it's certainly up there, though. Yeah, it's a fabulous adaptation. It is very much a wonderful adaptation of Shakespeare. Yeah. In with all of the elements that that means, it's a very good movie, and it's a good adaptation of Shakespeare. Um, we've seen movies now that have been good movies, not great adaptations of Shakespeare, decent adaptations of Shakespeare that are not in the end the best movies. Ones that are both, you know, I mean, of course, that that's going to happen. But I do think it's one of the best adaptations. Yeah. Yeah. All that implies. Adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. Given that uh, Wells so liberally moved uh, everything around. Yeah. Resplices the plays. Yeah. He found a story within those plays yeah. that is in Shakespeare and he gave it to us. Brilliantly yeah. said. He, he found that story. Yeah. And that's really, that's an amazing accomplishment, I think. He had wonderful material to start with. Yes, but, but he, he did, did something an really amazing with technical it. job with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think there was a there's a quote too. Well said. If I'll paraphrase, if if I had to get into heaven on the basis of one of the <laughs> films I made, I, I would put up this one. He said. So I'm glad that he felt proud of it. Yes, because it didn't get immediately. Anyways, the the recognition mm-hmm. that it it was not well received deserved, immediately, no. as far as I understand. Which is so true to the the Falstaff story. That's so true. <laughs> you know, the rejection. Yeah. 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 But he puts his heart and soul so clearly into it. I mean, <laughs> what role could seem more close and personal to him, I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. even just watching it and then to have it rejected. Oh, 
I'm going to cry. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I spend a lot of time feeling very sorry for Wells, I've got to say, in the long run of things, but... <laughs> I do want to give him a big bear hug, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah you yeah. do. I know at the end of the movie, that's all you want to do. <laughs> and drink, a, drink a cup of sack or a glass of yeah. canaries. One fun thing, too, is um, if, if you do go back and spend any time in the, in the plays themselves, mm-hmm. Shakespeare leaves us such amazing you know, relics of what it was like to drink in <laughs> the first time. Yes. You've got tapsters and you've got uh under skinkers and uh at one point we see that falstaff has a, a recipe in his pocket and there's all these great names for the wine they're drinking like bastard and sack and canaries and it's it's a really fun for, for all the mm-hmm. themes of friendship <laughs> and relationships it's fun just to kind of be in that world and, and listen in on how they talk about their partying it's yeah. it's real great real great time Okay, does anyone have any last things to add, or have we covered it? Well, there's always more. I said there's that. There's always more. But... That's true. <laughs> no, there's I... always more. Um... It was a very, I can see why it's a very interesting film to cinema scholars, as well as to, you know, people who are interested in Shakespeare and things, because it, it has, and it's not surprising, it's not much for me, for me to say, hey, Wells did something that's interesting to cinema scholars. <laughs> that's a shock. <laughs> but, you know, it really, it, it had so much to look at from that yeah. perspective. I think we're I think we're fat witted with drinking a old sack here. So, uh, as Prince Harry said. So. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us, John. And this has been a great discussion, and it's been really fun chatting with you. And thank you for bringing this film to our attention. Yeah, definitely. I'm so uh, happy that we got a, a pleasure to talk about it, and it was a real treat to to be on your podcast here. And in a few short weeks, I'll have finished all of Shakespeare this year. So uh, feel free to have me back if we need to talk about. <laughs> any more plays because my <laughs> mind is literally muddy with them <laughs> excellent well, well remind us again then uh of how people can find both your writing on on shakespeare and on other topics so i write on my journey of reading all of shakespeare in one year at shakespeareconfidential.com mm-hmm. it sort of takes a personal honest look at what Shakespeare means in my life today, as opposed to a more academic analysis. But that always creeps in because uh, I can't help myself in that regard. (laughs) That's who you are personally. So that's fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, So that's shakespeareconfidential.com. And I do write on some of Shakespeare's body or language at stronglang.wordpress.com. And many of those pieces have been cross-posted on slate.com they have a language blog called lexicon valley mm-hmm. and i know you you both are lovers of etymology as well mm-hmm. and we share that common interest so i write about the origins of words in the news i use a, a buzzing word a lot of them are coming from this <laughs> election and i use uh, etymology as a, an excuse to kind of reflect on the word mm-hmm. um, and that's at mashedradish.com mm-hmm. and if you're interested in my other writing, you can go to Mental Floss or Oxford Dictionaries or uh, Lexicon Valley for some writing on language there. Great, yeah. You came to our attention, let's put it that way, through the language, yeah. of course, because of our the interest in that. Radish mm-hmm. posts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the Shakespeare theme came after, and, and I, I have to say, uh, I, I love uh, The Endless Knot, and I can barely keep up with everything that you two are doing, because <laughs> between... 
this and the, the brilliant videos and the etymologies. And I have to say, when you make connections between cocktails and etymology, <laughs> there is literally nothing better. Well, thank you. <laughs> so now just find a way to squeeze Shakespeare in and we'll have the trifecta. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, sometimes we uh, have a cocktail while doing these, this podcast, but it's only 2.30 now in the afternoon here. So it would be a little improper, I think, on a Monday afternoon. <laughs> well, uh, Maybe uh, maybe I can join you for one of those next time. And I will challenge you guys to come up with Shakespeare-themed cocktails. That could be ah. an interesting idea. Uh, well. Okay. All right. That's a deal. We'll work on the Shakespeare <laughs> cocktails. And yeah, I'd love to do this again. This has been a lot of fun. And I'd love to talk Absolutely. to you about some of the other stuff. It's great, the uh, the background you're bringing to it from several perspectives. So thank you well, very thank much. thank you so much. It was a real honor, pleasure, and treat to talk to you guys about it. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. So next month, our regular John will actually be back for an episode because he's just found out that Kurosawa's Throne of Blood is being shown at a theater near him. So he's going to be watching that. So next month, we're actually going to be discussing that, which is an adaptation of Macbeth, of course. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, please check out the hashtag Humanities Podcast and or the Twitter account HumcomCasters at HumcomCasters to find new episodes of podcasts on history, language, literature, art, and more. That's something new that we're starting up to develop a community of humanities-themed podcasts out there. We've also got humanities videos at HumcomVids if you want to look at that. We're hoping that that will develop into a larger community of people with interests in common. All right, so that's everything for tonight. I'm Avon. I'm Mark. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at alliterative. I'm at Avon Sarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X.